Matthew chapter 19, starting verse 13. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You should not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is God's word. Thanks, Trey. Well, good morning. Matthew chapter 19, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 30 today. You know, as you consider various types of literature, I don't know how many of you are into literature Uh, But you're probably familiar with the use of irony in literature, in writing. Uh, There's all kinds of different types of irony that's used in uh, literary writings today, or non-literary writings even. We know that there's even different examples of types of irony that are used. For example, you have dramatic irony in, in plays, and probably one of the most famous examples of that is found in Romeo and Juliet. when, you know, when, when Romeo comes and finds Juliet sort of in a drug-induced sleep, he thinks she's dead, and therefore, because his love is so great for her, he takes his own life, right? Well, she was just sleeping, and she wakes up, realizes he's dead, and then she kills herself, and so you see the irony there in that dramatic use of irony, but, but then there are verbal types of irony, and, and simply put, it, it expresses meaning by using words that normally mean the opposite of what's actually being said. And so oftentimes we will use irony in our speaking, 
even if we don't realize we're doing so. So, for example, in verbal irony, you have what's called the overstatement or hyperbole. How many of you have ever said, I've told you a million times? How many parents we have in the room? Right? I've told you a million times. Really? You've been keeping track? A million times? See, the smart aleck in me, that would probably say something like that. Uh, or, this sermon is taking forever. Friends, it's not taking forever. Forever is a long time. It's just a blip on the radar screen, right? Or the oxymoron. Uh, best example that came to my mind was jumbo shrimp. You know, it's kind of Sounds funny when you think about that. We just typically eat it, but when you think about that, there's an oxymoron. Or the paradox uh, that's often used. You know, uh, when somebody says, that's great, well, it could be great, or they could be saying that in reference to a root canal that's being scheduled. Well, that's great. You really mean that's great? Or is you using that as something to express your disdain for? Um, so you see the use of irony in literature and even in how we speak, but you also find it used in the scriptures. Um, you will find various types of irony, and it's either stated or explicitly or intentionally used in the, in the literary uh, personality of the writer. We know the Holy Spirit inspired the scripture, but he didn't dictate from a far-off voice, but he actually used personality, and, 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 uh, and, and that's why you see various genres of Scripture and, and even the gospel writers and how they constructed their gospel. They weren't in a cave being told exactly, commanded what to write. The Lord was using inspiration and using their own personalities to accomplish what he wanted written in the Scriptures. And so, for example, you will find irony in the Bible, whether stated intentionally or indirectly, for, I, th- I think you see it in the person of Abraham. The first Jew was actually a Gentile. You find it in Job to his friends. You know, the, Job had counselors, right? He had, he had a good set of friends. They just tried to tell him what to do and why he was in the mess he was in. Job suffered extensively. Many, I mean, you just go to Job, and he's the epitome of one who suffers a whole lot of stuff, uh, losing family members, being afflicted with the sores, and basically losing everything he had al- always known. And his friends come to counsel him and basically tell him it's his fault that he's brought this on himself. And so Job responds in chapter 12, verse 2, No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. Now, Job was not pointing out there that these were great, wise counselors. He was using that in an ironic statement to say, Be quiet. Elijah, in 1 Kings chapter 18, as he encourages the prophets of Baal to call on Baal to respond, he knows that he has called up on the true God, and he worships the true God, but he encourages the prophet of Baal to call upon Baal to, to show up. Do you think that Elijah really believed that Baal was going to do this? No, it was irony that he was using there to encourage, uh, basically to prove his point that there's only one God. We see it in other examples throughout the scripture in, in, the, in the life of David when he commits adultery with Bathsheba Nathan comes and tells David a story doesn't he he tells David about this rich man and poor man the poor man has a lamb he feeds it he cares for it like a pet well then these travelers come by the, in the story that Nathan's telling David and they they, they come and, and visit well they, they ask the rich man to, to, to take them in and, 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 and to care for them and well The rich man, instead of killing his own lamb, he goes and kills the poor man's lamb and prepares it for the travelers. Well, David's outraged. How could this be? This rich man deserves to die. And then the irony becomes clear when Nathan looks at David and says, you are the man. You are the man. And so we see irony used in the scripture. And and 
I want you to, to, to think about that, especially when we, have, when we come to the Scripture that we have before us this morning. Because what I think we have here are what I call five ironies of the kingdom that, that teach us some critical truths about entrance into the kingdom and life in the kingdom. Sort of used in, in, in the form of irony this morning. And I want us to walk through those together as we consider this text. The first thing, the first uh, bit of irony that we see concerning entering in life in the kingdom is that those who lack possess. Those who lack actually possess. Look at verses 13 through 15. The children were brought to Jesus that he might lay hands on them and pray, and the disciples in secret service mode rebuked them, sort of quarantining Jesus, saying, get away from Jesus. But Jesus said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. This was a common custom in this day and time for for parents to bring children to be prayed for and to be blessed. And so it wasn't unusual that children would be brought to to a rabbi or some, some important figure. It was a very common practice. But the disciples rebuked the people for bringing their children to Jesus. Now we know a couple of weeks ago, back in chapter 18, we, we see back in actually verse 3 of chapter 18, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you become like children. And so children were an important part of that society, even in, in Jesus' mind, even though they weren't considered very important or could contribute much to the society during that, that time that time frame. Children were quite welcome, according to Jesus, according to this passage here in chapter 19, to receive the blessings of the kingdom, and Jesus gladly welcomed them, but they also represented a kingdom reality. We, we hinted at that, or talked about that, back in when we looked at chapter 18. They represented a kingdom reality, namely that the powerless, the helpless, the vulnerable of society, those who were the the, the, the least qualified in society's mind were actually the most qualified to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is not pointing to the children here as if the children possess something. Quite the contrary. Jesus is pointing to the children as an example of those who didn't possess anything in order to get them into the kingdom of heaven. And so the reason he welcomes them is he truly, genuinely, genuinely wanted to bless them, but he recognized that, listen, like children, entering the kingdom, entering the kingdom requires you to enter like a child. Not that you become a child or not that you act childish, but that you recognize that the small, the powerless, we have no claims on our own. These children came empty-handed to Jesus. In fact, they were even brought to him. They didn't even bring themselves. They came empty-handed to Jesus. And the point I think that Jesus is making here in, this, in this, this truth that we see emerging, those who lack actually possess. Unless people come to Jesus empty-handed, totally helpless, realizing they lack any good in them and are totally dependent upon him, they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, I'm reminded, we're going to sing at the closing today, Rock of Ages, I'm reminded of, of the hymn, that's, that verse 2, where it says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. 
Friends, I think that's exactly the point that Jesus is making here. Listen, when it comes to entering the kingdom of heaven, it's those who lack who actually possess. Empty your hands. Come like a child. Come empty-handed. Come completely dependent upon the mercy of another. You know, there's a common saying that people will often use. Maybe you've used this saying before, and you've heard me speak about this before, but it's the saying that, that says God only helps those who help themselves. And they will actually say that the Bible teaches that, when in fact that's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, it's anti-gospel. God actually helps those who can't help themselves. We are all sinners. We are all unable to help ourselves, and it's the act of God's grace alone that brings salvation. We can't help ourselves. We are at the mercy of Christ. I think the point that we see here is until we come to an end of ourselves and realize that we have nothing to contribute for our own salvation and cast our hope upon Christ through faith, we will not enter the kingdom. But if we come through Christ in faith in him, those who lack will actually possess. But then there's a second point, second truth that we see. So we've got to stay awake through this sermon, okay, because you'll think I'm contradicting myself. Second point is those who possess lack. So, Pastor, you're confused. You just said the opposite. Yeah, I did. Let me explain myself. See, I believe there's an intentional contrast. As, the, as, as Matthew wrote his gospel, I think he's intentionally contrasting the children, the image of children, to the young man, the rich young man. James Edwards commented on this passage, and he said this, How profoundly ironic is the kingdom of God. The children of the former story, who possess nothing, are, told they lack, are not told they lack anything, but rather that the kingdom of God is theirs. Yet this man, this rich man, possesses everything, and he still lacks something. You know, this rich man seems to have everything going for him, doesn't he? Just look and you read the passage. Comes Jesus asks, What good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? He even claims to keep the commandments. He's young, he's moral, spiritually interested, respects the commandments, and he's rich. I guarantee you, if this man entered any door of any church, people would flock to him. And say, you are welcome here. You're just the kind of person that we want in our congregation. Because you have it all going for you. You're spiritual. Not to mention, you've got a fat wallet. Right? If there was ever a candidate for the kingdom, it must have been this guy. what the disciples thought and this man approaches Jesus and asks perhaps the most important question anyone could ask teacher what must I do actually he says what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life friend that question or a form of that question is the most important question you could ever ask 
How do I inherit eternal life? And he is thinking good works. What good thing? What's the one thing? What's the good work that, that qualifies me for the kingdom? In just a moment, he's going to claim that he's kept the commandments. Now, I don't believe he's kept the commandments, nor does Jesus. And that's, that's part of what Jesus is doing. He's, he's using a method here to expose the reality of his heart. But he, he's going to claim in just a moment that he's done that. He's checked those boxes. But even before we get there, Jesus clarifies that only God is good. You see the question, teacher, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? And he, Jesus says to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Do you see what Jesus is doing? Even before he gets to the commandments, he is condemning this guy. Gently. But he's showing him where he stands. There's only one that's good. He's setting the standard at the beginning. In fact, in a real sense, Jesus is diagnosing this man's condition even before the conversation continues. And then he says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now, in a modern standard of, modern standard of evangelism, which pushes for immediate decision, sometimes before people even realize what they're deciding on, some would say Jesus is off track here. Not only does he, not only is he not doing it the way the evangelism books say, he seems to be preaching a gospel of works. That's what some would say. How do I inherit eternal life? What good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? And it seems as if Jesus is saying, keep the commandments and you will inherit eternal life. In fact, that's what he says, isn't it? If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Verse 18, he said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I've kept. What do I still lack? Now Jesus could have stopped right there and said, really? And taken him back to the Sermon on the Mount and showed that even those who... who Look with their eyes are adulterers. And those who even have anger in their hearts are actually murderers. He could have gone there. He didn't. He does something a bit more to expose this man's heart. I mean, this man's response is incredible. I've kept the commandments. After all, you, you can almost get the sense of what he's saying. Right? After all, I'm not a murderer. I've not killed anybody. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a thief. I've not done the big things, right? So Jesus says to him, if you would be perfect, then go sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. And the man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. In one simple statement, Jesus exposed, exposed the idolatry, the greed, the selfishness that dominated this man's heart. Outwardly, he looked moral, did good things. 
But when it came to standing before a good and holy God, this man still fell short. Jesus was using the law as a diagnostic tool to demonstrate the reality of the man's heart. This man's self-deceived. And Jesus reveals the fact that this man is held captive by many things. As I mentioned, he's greedy. He's covet, he covets. He's prideful. He's an idolater. He, he worships his possessions more than he would God. John MacArthur said it this way, the young ruler was aware of what he did not have and needed to receive, namely eternal life, but he was willing, not willing, he was not willing to admit what he did have and needed to be rid of, namely sin. You know, friends, when I think about the rich man, the rich young man, he's, he's an example of so many of us. Reflective of so many of us. The basic self-assessment of most people is that they aren't that bad. I'm a good person. And we can justify that. Compare yourself to another person that's not so good, and you come out always better. And humanly speaking, we can, we can, we can see that. We can see that, yeah, I'm not that bad. I've not killed people. I've not committed adultery. I've not done these things. I've not broken these big laws and rules that we find in the scripture. But why do you think that Jesus at the very beginning said there's only one who is good? There's only one standard that counts, and that is perfection. That is the holiness of God. That is the goodness of God, because only God is good. That's why the scripture later says that no one is good, no, not one. No one is righteous. Friends, it's not what you have or do that brings you to Jesus. It's what you don't have and what Jesus has done that brings you to Jesus. Never confuse those. It's not what you have and it's not what you do that makes you right with a good God. It's what you don't have and what Jesus has and placing faith in that that makes you right with God. So those who possess lack, meaning that if you're clinging to your things or if you're clinging to some hope within you, if you're just hoping at the end of the day that the good outweighs the bad, which so many people do, when you stand before the king who alone is good, you will realize that your standard, your standard which you think you have met has fallen well short of God's standard. Number three, the impossible is possible. Look at verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, after the man went away sorrowful, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Well, who then can be saved? Jesus. And here's an ideal candidate. This rich man, spiritually interested, says he's kept the commandments, and you've turned him away. 
Actually, the man himself turned himself away. Jesus confronted him with the truth. Who can be saved then? It's one of the best questions. It's one of the best moments when Peter opened his mouth. Normally when Peter opened his mouth, it wasn't good. This is a good time. Well, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, with man, it is impossible. Right there, that statement alone proves that you can't have salvation by keeping the law. That statement alone discredits anyone who would say he's teaching a a works-based salvation, keep the commandments and you'll be saved. No, he's not doing that. He confirms that here. With man, this is impossible. You can't save yourself. You can't bring yourself out of the condition you are in. With man, this is absolutely impossible. Let that sink in for a moment. Left to you, left to me, to be reconciled to God, none of us would be reconciled. It's impossible. You and I aren't good enough. Even if you added all of our good works together, wouldn't be enough. God doesn't weigh on the scale. His standard is perfection. That's why it's impossible, because no one is perfect. No one is righteous. In God's standard. This truth of man's total inability to save himself is a truth that I think so many people bypass because there's something I think it's in our sinful nature to think this way there's something in every single one of us doesn't matter how long you've believed in a gospel of grace something in every single one of us that that thinks if I just do this if I just go to church enough if I just pray enough if I just read my Bible maybe if I'm just kind enough to my family surely God would smile upon me and And welcome me. Jesus says with man it's impossible. You would never be a Christian left to yourself. Jesus is saying here that the real problem is not money. It's the human heart. That covets the money. What Jesus is doing is he is teaching an important point that would be later affirmed by Paul and even Peter later on. Sometimes referred to the doctrine of total inability or total depravity. It's it's being stated clearly right here. With man, salvation is impossible. What was true of this rich man is true of every single person. We all are sinners, and we are bound by our sin, and there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. Salvation is impossible for us to obtain on our own, but but with God all things are possible. John 1, verse 12 and 13. We typically just hear verse 12, but you have to add verse 13 have the context but to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God it's good news who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man 
but of God. Impossible with man, but with God it's possible. John 6, Jesus said, No one can come to me, no one can come to me, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Same chapter, verse 65, and he said to his disciples, after many fled and many, many turned and no longer walked with Jesus, he says to his disciples, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted Unless it is granted him by the Father. With sal- when, it, when it comes to salvation, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And only with God can someone be converted. Friends, this is our great hope. This is our great hope. We are all like those little children. We have nothing to offer. We are helpless. We are powerless. But by God's grace, we can be saved. And this is one of those moments in, in your life when, when, the, when the lights come on and you realize, I can't save myself, but God can. God can save me. I can't save my, my, my family member, my spouse, my children. I can't save my coworker who just is so hardened, but God can. What do we do with this impossibility? Do we just give up and say, what's the use? If it's impossible, why, why should I even care? Or do we place our confidence in an all-powerful, sovereign God who can do the miraculous? Salvation is a miracle. When a dead person, spiritually speaking, comes to life, it's a miracle. It's because God has done that. It's because God has awakened that, that sinner. Salvation is truly a miracle. It's not something we can manufacture, but by the grace of God, we can receive it through helpless, powerless, childlike faith in Jesus. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, and you've been trying to do the best you can, hoping that God will somehow bring you in. Maybe the good outweighs the bad. And I would just tell you today, the scale that you're hoping in will not tip in your favor. But if you have faith in Christ and in his perfection and in his cross and in his resurrection, if you would trust in that, not only will the scale tip in your favor, God will forgive you of all your sins. And he will clothe you with righteousness and he will give you a hope that is far more than you could ever fathom. The impossible is possible, but only through faith in Christ. Number four, those who lose, find. Those who lose, find. Verse 27, then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. It's one of the joys about life in the kingdom and for those who have trusted in Christ by faith the grace of God 
when they forsake all to follow Jesus, the rewards and the blessings we receive are countless. Jesus told the man to go sell all his possessions and give to the poor and follow me. Not because that was the means of salvation, but it was the fruit of salvation. But this man was unwilling to part with his possessions in order to follow Jesus. And Jesus is saying, the only one who gains true life understands that when one comes to me in faith, he must follow me. That's why he says, sell all your possessions. You will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And salvation, salvation is not merely about one going to heaven when they die, although that is true. But it's not only about that. That's the eternal blessing and benefit that you and I receive when we have faith in Jesus, but we are called to follow Him, to walk in His ways, to love Him, to obey Him, not for salvation, but because of salvation. We follow Him. In order to experience experience the blessings of God's kingdom, we must be willing to lay all aside and follow Jesus. Listen, Christianity is not... The the Christian life is not a a tiered group where you have those who believe in Jesus that are going to heaven and then the super extra credit Christians, right? Who do more. Listen, the Christian life is either you follow Jesus or or you don't. You're either in or you're out. You either love him or you love yourself more. You either follow or you don't. The rich man was wanting the blessings of eternal life, but not willing to count the cost. Therefore, he did not have true saving faith. So Peter says to Jesus, well, we've done everything. We've done the very thing you've asked the rich man to do. Left their nets, they left their business, left their families, and they have followed. We've left all to follow you. Now, a lot of discussion that goes on here about the motive behind Peter's question. What then will we have? We've left everything. Is that sort of a snide question or is that a genuine question? Regardless, it's a good question. Because even if it's presented with a a selfish motive, it does help us understand that we do receive blessings for following Jesus. And so then Jesus gives them a foretaste of what would be. It's a snapshot, I believe, of Daniel chapter 7, which includes the vision of the enthronement of the Son of Man and a reference to the glory that the disciples will enjoy in the future. Whether you see that literally as the 12 disciples or a representation of the church, that's yet to be debated at another point. But he gives them a foretaste of what would be there as he points to that future glory that the Son of Man will will certainly have and and the glory that the disciples will enjoy along with him. There is blessing for those who are gripped by the gracious hand of God and forsake all to follow Jesus. That's the point he's making. The amazing irony, irony of life in the kingdom 
is that only when you have forsaken everything will you receive everything. Paul got that. Philippians chapter 3. This is Paul writing to the church at Philippi, and he's warning them about those who would harm them. And then in verse 3, he says, For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. With man it's impossible. No confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. So Paul gives his resume here. He just goes down the list. If anyone thinks, else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. We clean things so we clean things up in the English translations. That's sewer stuff. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. He just said, as to the law of Pharisee, righteousness under the law, blameless. Now he's saying, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law because he understood he couldn't have that. He, as a Pharisee, even if he thought he had obtained perfection by the law, he knows down deep he did not. I don't have a righteousness that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul laid everything aside in order to follow Jesus. J.C. Raw, the great Anglican, said this, We may rest assured that no man shall ever be a real loser by following Christ. The believer may seem to suffer loss for a time when he first begins the life of a decided Christian. He may be much cast down by the afflictions that are brought upon him on account of his religion, but let him rest assured that he will never find himself a loser in the long run. You might lose friends. You might lose family members. You might even lose status. But you gain Christ. Number five. The first are last. And the last are first. Verse 30. Many who are first will be last and the last first. We get to chapter 20 in a few weeks. We've got some Easter stuff coming up. We're going to look at the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. 
which I think fleshes this idea out more, so we'll take a closer look at that in a few weeks. But the point he's making here is that, friends, this is how life is lived out in the kingdom. Those who are last are now first. We had nothing. We had nothing to bring. We, had, we brought nothing to the table except our own sin, and we were received by Jesus. I think the point is this, listen, status doesn't guarantee you anything in the kingdom of God. It may gain you a whole lot in this life, but your status, your earthly status doesn't earn you anything with God. You may be the greatest of this and the most devout of that, but unless you have faith in Jesus alone, Your status will only be of earthly good, not of heavenly good. Your title, your prestige, your accomplishments will not secure your way into the kingdom of God. That's why Paul said this as we wrap up in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 down to verse 31. Your status doesn't guarantee you anything. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Your salvation was purchased for you and given to you through Christ. Don't you ever boast. If you boast, boast in the cross and give glory to God. Because he has done that which is impossible by granting you life. Jesus is in essence saying, Paul is saying, God doesn't judge by human standards. He judges based upon the reality and condition of the human heart. And until that heart is changed by the grace of God, none of us will have hope. You know, the irony of all ironies is actually wrapped up in the person and work of Jesus himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. The irony of all ironies. The perfect one condemned so that the unperfect can be accepted. That's the gospel. Christ did that. The perfect Lamb of God shed His blood so that imperfect, unworthy, undeserving sinners can be reconciled. That's the only way. The sinless one became sin so that the unrighteous could be declared righteous. 
And only because of that great exchange that we have through Christ can those who lack gain. The impossible become possible and our loss become gain and the last become first. Friend, do you know Christ? Have you trusted in him? Or you continue to trust in yourself? Salvation comes through Christ alone, by the grace of God alone, for the glory of God alone. Look to him, rest in him and be saved. And if you have looked to him, continue to trust in him and walk with him for the glory of his name. Because he has done, he has done the very thing that you could not and would not do for yourself. May he be forever praised. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks. We give you praise. We give you glory. Because in your great love and mercy, you have extended through Jesus, his life, his work, hope to the world. Father, there's so many that just like the rich man, they walk away and they're confronted with the reality of their hearts and they walk away. Father, my prayer this morning that if there are people in this room that are like the rich man, that Lord, that they would not walk away sorrowful. But Lord, that they would walk away today rejoicing because of what Christ has done and what Christ has provided. And Lord, if there are any here that, that do not have a, a relationship with you, God, that you would accomplish that, that you would work that desire in their hearts, that you would break through their selfishness and pride, and that you would call them to a humble faith in Christ. Father, for those who have faith in you and who are yours, I pray that these truths would be a great reminder of the hope that we have in Christ. And that would be a great source of encouragement and confidence this week to think that we are living miracles of grace. Once we were blind, but now we see Though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Christ made alive. Father, may that not only be our profession, what we say. Father, may that be the very life we live. Father, would you work in our hearts? Would you allow your word to accomplish that very thing you've determined today. Individual by individual, person by person, family by family. And even as a whole in this congregation. Lord, we thank you that you are a faithful God. That you have called sinners to yourself. And that you have granted life to people who could never earn it or gain it on our own. We give you glory and praise and thanks. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Stand together and sing this great hymn.
You respond today as the Lord leads you to respond.